With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is uh, Conversation in Jersey Education. I'll be your host today. I'm Ray Penny with New Jersey School Board Association. It's a program where we bring uh, important education issues to you. Uh, you meet educational leaders and other leaders in other fields. Um, if you and this is interactive. If you want to participate, you can dial one. 347-989-8904 and press the number one and that will let Robin know that you have a question and she will get your name and your question and uh, we'll put you on the air. So that's one 347 Or there's also a chat room feature where you can just uh, uh, go into our chat room, type in your question or comment and I'll pass it on. Now, you do have to register with Blog Talk Radio, but there's no fee on that. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about today's program because we're looking at an issue that uh, is uh, has a, a lot of people have questioned it um, as to what the implementation really looks like, uh, and it's uh, the legalization of marijuana. And particularly, we'll have a, obviously a bent towards the, the school districts. Uh, with me to discuss this, I have uh, two two attorneys uh, with the, the the firm of Florio, Perucci, Steinhardt, Capelli, Tipton, and Taylor. Um, with me is Seth Tipton, and uh, welcome, Seth. Thank you for having us. And welcome, uh, Caitlin Fletcher. Yes, thank you for having us. Um, my pleasure. This is a great topic, uh, particularly for our school districts as they go to implement uh, policies. Uh, so, Caitlin, before we get started, just tell us a little bit about the firm and the work it does with education groups. Sure. So, we... Um, we have about 40 attorneys in our law firm, and we have offices in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. Our New Jersey offices are in Phillipsburg, Cherry Hill, and New Providence. And within this firm, we now have an education practice group where I am a partner, and we also have three other partners and about 15 attorneys total in this, in this group where we work with school districts up and down the state of New Jersey with anything from special education, labor and negotiations, student discipline, bids and procurements. You know, we run the gambit of any issues that, that touch school districts. Okay. Well, education law always is fascinating because it does touch so many different aspects. Um, so, um, Back in uh, November, the voters approved the constitutional amendment. Uh, but what does that really mean in terms of how is it going to – what's the time frame of all this? Uh, so, Seth, I know you've been doing a lot of work on, in this area. So can you give us an overview of how this is all going to roll out and has rolled out? Sure. Uh, thanks. So uh, just by way of background, I, uh, I'm a partner with the firm, and I chair our corporate and cannabis practices. So I'm not the education attorney, but I, I spend – I feel like every waking minute over the last – year on cannabis matters in New Jersey. So the question that you've posed is one that comes up in many conversations. Um, the, the process that's going to occur after the constitutional amendment first was for a law to be 
passed by the legislature and signed into law by the governor. And that occurred with, uh, on February 22nd of this year. There were, there were essentially three bills that were signed. Um, two dealt with decriminalization. Um, one bill dealt with the, the um, actual architecture of the adult use cannabis market, and that bill is A21. Um, with that, lo- that law, A21, includes in it a, a series of dates that, are, that basically prop up and start the program, and they all sort of waterfall from one critical date, and that is uh, the appointment of the five members of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission. I'll, I'll refer to the Cannabis Regulatory Commission as either the commission or the CRC. That's generally how it's known. And this is the five-person body that's going to administer and regulate and govern the entire cannabis market in New Jersey. Um, just before I kind of just go into that, I, I just want to explain, uh, we don't use the terms uh, cannabis uh, and marijuana lightly. They actually now with the new law, the two terms carry very different meanings. Uh, regulated cannabis is cannabis that has been uh, grown, manufactured, sold, used, possessed, under and in compliance with the medical cannabis or the regulated cannabis laws. Uh, marijuana, on the other hand, is uh, a form of, is an illegal substance subject to the decriminalization, which I'll explain later. So if I'm referring to cannabis, I'm talking about regulated cannabis. If I'm referring to marijuana, it's because it's really in reference to the potentially illegal substance. So with A21 in place, there's now a requirement that the uh, CRC uh, issue regulations. That's the most important next step. And that's, that has to occur by August 21st of this year. Um, but, but it could happen as early as 45 days from the date of appointment of the CRC. The CRC has, has been announced, but not yet formally seated and appointed. So I would expect reg- draft regulations on the entire program um, sometime this summer. I think at the earliest it would be uh, May, and, and, and it has to be done by August. Once those regulations have been published and then subsequently adopted, um, they, the, the CRC must accept uh, applications for licenses within 30 days. So that, that could be and likely will be at some point in late summer or as late as September of this year. Once that, once those licenses have been, uh, those applications for licenses have been accepted, uh, that triggers a timeline for the CRC to approve the, uh, the first permissible sale by new licensees of regulated cannabis, which could be um, as late as January 2022. So the long and short of it is that the purchase of regulated cannabis for adult users, not medical. Uh, is likely not going to be something that you're going to be able to see or do until the first quarter of 2022. Now, those timetables can shorten if they draft regulations very quickly, and there is some suggestion that they may try to do that. But I, I, I'm, guess, I, I'm guessing for clients that looking at that is really the first quarter of 2022. I will say, though, one important note for this conversation is that simultaneous with the passage of A21, there was the passage of A1897 and S3454. Those two bills were decriminalization bills, which make it uh, legal for adults to possess um, for adults to possess marijuana. Again, you know, not not regulated cannabis um, in the amount of six ounces of less for adults, uh, and for minors uh, less than one ounce. So, you you're going to you know, these things are people's possession of marijuana. Uh, 
is going to be something that is an issue until regulated cannabis is actually out there circulating. So um, just to follow up on that, so it's decriminalized, but you still can't sell it uh, at this point. Is that what uh, you're saying? Distribution of, of one ounce or less uh, will still be a, a, a fourth-degree crime. So it is a crime, but it is basically at the same level of a disorderly person. But mere possession of less than six ounces by adults or less than one ounce by minors um, will not be a crime uh, from, from, from basically the passage of those two bills in, in March. Okay. Um, other question. How will this affect the workplace? Can, uh, uh, you know, um, can uh, employers – still uh, do drug testing or uh, of that sort? Yeah, this is a question that comes up with a lot of employers, obviously. We field it from many different clients and have been for the last year. One of the most heavily negotiated provisions of the law, um, I provided comments on it a number of times to the legislature, and, you know, any time you get a heavily negotiated provision of the law, it, it doesn't satisfy everyone, and, and that's what the current vision, version looks like. It's actually pretty convoluted. Um, the most important thing to know for employers is you cannot – employees have no right to be intoxicated in the workplace, period. They also have no right mm-hmm. to use or possess cannabis in the workplace. Mm-hmm. However, the problem with cannabis, as many people know, is you do not have a, a test for acute toxicity. You cannot prove that someone has used cannabis within a certain, set of, a certain time frame to prove intoxication. It's not like a, you know, a breathalyzer. You can prove someone had so many drinks likely within such amount of time. A person could test positive and not be intoxicated at that time. So what the new law has in place is a protection in section 48 of A21 includes a provision that says that uh, no employer can take any adverse action uh, against an employee solely as a result of that person testing positive for the use of cannabis. Um, what they, okay. they must do is accompany that proof, that test, with proof of use, possession, or intoxication in the workplace. Um, there are some big problems with that. And the biggest is that to prove intoxication, the new law requires the employer to engage a person called a workplace impairment recognition expert. Uh, this expert would be someone that's certified by the state police to serve as an expert on identifying when employees are intoxicated. So presently, that, uh, that person, that certification does not yet exist, um, and it's not clear when those certifications will be available and when employers will actually be able to get an employee certified with that uh, status. So as a result, right now, uh, if an employee were to test positive, it's not clear that you'd be able to satisfy the law on proving intoxication because you don't have the workplace impairment recognition expert in place. This expert requirement is unique to New Jersey. Out of all the states that have legalized cannabis in some form, no, one, no other state has a provision like this. Um, and it's not clear when the expert has to get involved. In other words, do you need that expert to be the first person to say that that person appears intoxicated? Um, or can another employee make that determination and then refer them to the expert? So there's all kinds of issues uh, that are arising from this provision. I, I think 
there's two major take, I guess three major takeaways I would have. One is if an employee is required by federal law to be tested and to be free of cannabis, um, that preempts state law. And the most important exception there is people with CDLs. If you have a commercial driver's license, you can, you have no rights and no protection under this law. You still must test clean of cannabis usage to be employed and use that CDL. Um, the other big takeaway is have to go and review your drug testing policy for employees right now. You just, I guarantee it's out of date because this law sort of flipped everything on its head. If you're going to test employees and you're going to take an adverse action on, on a positive screen, you must accompany it with some evidence of intoxication. You have to do it. You should document it. You should have multiple employees document it um, because if you don't, you're inviting a lawsuit. Um, uh, and, the, and the last thing I, I would say is you should really evaluate what employees you're testing. If they're not in safety-sensitive positions and given the protections that users have under this law, I think employers should be looking at, do we really want to know? Because if once you learn that and you take adverse action against that employee, if you don't couple it with evidence of intoxication, that employee may have a cause of action against the employer. So sorry, that was a long-winded answer, Ray, but that's because this issue is generated a lot of uh, comment from, from employers uh, throughout the state. Yeah, it, and it does seem pretty uh, complicated. Uh, <laughs> well, it would be very difficult, I guess, is the, the way I look at it, if you're going to go down that road, as you said later on, uh, as you ended it. Uh, is there anything else that we should know about? Uh, wasn't there a change uh, for children, uh, for uh, my, people under the age of 21, or 18, I should say, um, that uh, that was just modified. I guess it was last week. Uh, yeah. So for a possession. Yeah. The, the original the original um, decriminalization bill A1897 um, had basically eliminated a requirement. Well, let me back up. Under the decriminalization bills, for individuals under the age of 21. Um, if if they were to possess or consume any marijuana in any public places, in school, including a school or a motor vehicle, um, there was a requirement that they be issued a written warning and not be arrested. Um, and and in the original bill, there was no requirement for a notification to a person's parent or guardian. Um, in March 26, there was a there was an amendment that was referred to basically as a cleanup bill. It's S3454. And that changed, the, so the resulting framework is now for a minor who possesses marijuana, and again, I'm saying marijuana because we're not talking about regulated cannabis. They can't purchase regulated cannabis. Um, for a minor that has marijuana, for a first and second offense, they're going to be given a written warning, and their parent or guardian must be notified. For a third offense, they're given a written warning, but the officer is required to refer that person to um, basically community treatment services programs. Um, if the minor does not actually take advantage of those community treatment services, it is not a crime, and it is not a crime for the parent not to enforce or require that, that minor to, to attend those programs. It's also really important to note, um, particularly in the school context, that it's no longer permissible for law enforcement to search um, or request to search a, a minor solely as a result of the smell of, of, of burnt marijuana. So the smell of burnt marijuana is no longer probable cause to search a student. That's number one. The other really big change is it is no longer permissible 
for law enforcement to ask for consent to search a minor. The minors cannot give consent to have their person searched. So if you take those two things combined, if, if, if the smell uh, of, of marijuana is no longer probable cause and the students, or the, not students, but the minors cannot give consent to be searched, it's really, it should be very unlikely that a, a, a minor is actually you know, basically caught with possession. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, we're going to switch to the, we'll switch a little to the education realm uh, in the schools and how this affects them. So, Caitlin, from your perspective, we're, you know, particularly for boards of education and the administration, it's the policies and the procedures that they have to look at first. So what ones should they be looking at now just to review? Sure. I think that, you know, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, in light of these new laws that districts, you know, have been and will always be responsible for maintaining a healthy and safe and non-disruptive educational environment for students and staff members. So I think it's important for them to look at their student code of conduct, their employee handbook, and board policies for students and staff members regarding the use, possession, and distribution of substances. The new laws, they, they exist now, but also they didn't take away, you know, education law statutes in 18A or the regulations in, in 6A regarding what policies that school districts have to have and the procedures in place that they need to follow when they suspect that a student is under the influence of marijuana. So I think it's really important to just to review those policies, make sure that they are aligned with the education statutes and regulations so that they are, they're, they're nice and tight and they can go back on them to make sure their policies are aligned. And also make sure their policies are clear. Are the expectations for students and staff members and parents clear? Are their procedures and due process rights clear? And, you know, beyond just the, the discipline side of it, you know, New Jersey regulations also require the policies to address students' substance abuse issues and support options. So even if this is included in your policies, is it being implemented? So, yeah, just looking up to tighten up and make sure they're actually being implemented consistently. Uh, would it be similar, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned their, uh, the conduct. Would it be similar mm -hmm. to just uh, alcohol? Uh, I'm not saying you switch the word uh, marijuana or cannabis for uh, alcohol all the time, but so it, it's basically like if a student was caught with a beer, it's almost the same they violated this conduct policy. Is that yeah. the way it looks? Yeah. So, you know, as, as Seth was saying, you know, especially right now when we're still waiting for regulations on on cannabis. So, you know, marijuana is still considered a controlled dangerous substance, and and the regulations and statutes require, you know, certain procedures for alcohol and controlled dangerous substances. So, you know, any student who appears to be under the under the influence of one of those, a staff member must report that as soon as possible to the principal and a school nurse or the school physician or a student assistant counselor. And then that principal must report it to the superintendent and parent immediately and also arrange for the immediate medical examination of the student. Uh, just, and Seth said this before, 
marijuana is very hard. We don't have. It's not like you have a breathalyzer test. Uh, mm-hmm. So, how do you proceed with this? Because, you know, my father probably could have told me. Uh, he would have been one of those experts that Seth talked about. But uh, um, how do you go about doing this in the school? Uh, I, I guess you have to do this a little gently. Yeah, I, and I think that it, it's going to come down to this balancing act in schools because it is a, it is a unique environment where districts still have to maintain that healthy, safe, and and non-disruptive environment. So if whether it's a, a student's behavior or a staff member's behavior that is affecting that environment, they still need to, to address that because that's still, okay. you know, the, the main concern of, of the administration. Okay, and uh, Seth mentioned that the police can't just stop a, uh, a minor and uh, say, search them. What about uh, lockers uh, uh, in schools? Can a school district search a locker? So right now, and Seth, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that those those requirements only at this point requ- re, um, apply to law enforcement officers. Yeah, that's correct. The, the, the rules that I'm referring to are, are for law, law enforcement or, uh, officers throughout the state. Okay, that's yeah, what so I was I verifying. Just, okay. Yeah, and I would just be, be careful in that, you know, the school districts do have school resource officers in the buildings who are police officers. So I would be careful in when districts are investigating incidents that use your administrators, use your principals, just not to get into a situation where someone who is, even though you're, they're working in your school, they technically are a police officer. So I would just be careful mm-hmm. keeping that separate and keeping your administrators as the ones who are, who are mostly involved. Okay, you, you took away my next question because uh, <laughs> districts do have uh, police officers in their building a lot. So that was my next question. Um, um, and also, I just want to reiterate because um, there was there was a lot of uh, consternation about the police notifying uh, the parents, but the school districts always have that uh, always had that authority to notify the parents uh, or the obligation yes. to notify. Yes. The, oh, one hundred percent. Yes. You know, they for certain things like as I mentioned earlier, being under the influence. I mean, that requires by statute a, a mandatory notification to parents. And then, again, uh, that goes to just taking another look at your policies and procedures and making sure it's, it's clear when parents are involved and when notification is made, just so everybody's on the same page and you have those policies to back up your actions. Okay. Uh, and if they do ha- have some, a student, uh, so it would be under their policy as to what their discipline would be for a student who was caught with possession or even using it? Yes, yes. And, you know, the Attorney General's Office also issued guidance that, you know, explicitly states that administrators still have that authority and discretion to impose disciplinary action for possession on school grounds. And it would okay. be and yes, I, guided I by their student code of conduct. Okay. I, I just thought of this question uh, when we were talking about SROs. Uh, and I don't know if Seth or you would take on this one there used to be uh, and i know some districts would have the police come in and they would have like drug sniffing dogs um is that something that you probably uh because it's the police department doing that is that something that uh 
might be questionable now? Yeah, I don't think it would be permissible for law enforcement to do that because there is a blanket prohibition on the smell of marijuana serving as probable cause for a search. So uh, I, 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 I'm, my assumption is that the only way a dog, a dog sniffing dog is going to, you know, signal for a, a locker, let's say, is, is based upon the smell. And I think, I think that, you know, I'd take that case as a criminal defense attorney that there's no, there's no grounds for probable cause there. <laughs> and then subsequently, you, you also can't ask the student for consent to search the locker. So it's, you know, combining those two things, I think, I don't think that that practice is going to have to be reviewed. Certainly. Okay. And I should note, right. I should note that the that the law actually imposes a, a criminal penalty on law enforcement officers that violate that provision. Oh, okay, that, that's a good point to know. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize that one. Okay, um, let's, let's, you know, Caitlin, before you talk about all the aspects that your firm does in terms of education law, which is varied, but you're also an employer. Uh, so, uh, and in many cases, you're maybe the largest employer in the community. Um, what about as an, employ- uh, as an employer? Are there any guidelines that you would have in, in, in this area? Uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, just going back to what's already in place and then tweaking in light of the new laws and making sure that it's consistent. And I think that in terms of, you know, the employer as a school district, is that what you're referring to to as, as being, because sometimes that's how I think of the 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 larger, yes, as the largest employer in (laughs) sometimes. So I think that just, you know, recognizing and enforcing that a lot of these the current requirements in the education context, you know, require things to be handled ASAP and immediate with immediate notifications and just making sure that you are handling them immediately. And again, as I mentioned earlier, just making sure of the of the of the lanes to not get it crossed with potential, you know, law enforcement officers who are working in the school district and just keeping everybody's lanes separate to to make sure that you know there can be no challenges to your actions and just again making those you know the the school policy standard is you know was it is it arbitrary and capricious so making sure that your policies are as backed up and clear as possible so that you do have defense in, in enforcing them and my mantra just to oh. piggyback on Caitlin's comments there my mantra with employers is Look at who you're testing. You know, it was okay for a long time to test everybody, um, but that's no longer the case. And you're going to, if you start testing everyone and you start flagging employees that have cannabis positive screens, you can you can actually invite liability. What there's emerging case law that's going to pro, that provides protection for medical cannabis users, and there's protections in this law for adult use cannabis users, and and both have a long way to go with the courts to figure them out. But the best way in the short term to avoid liability is to start thinking about who do you really want to test? Because somebody mm-hmm. that's sitting in the accounting office, you know, somebody that's sitting in the accounting office that's never appeared intoxicated in the workplace, maybe you don't want to know and maybe you don't need to know. Um, 
particularly un- unless and, and just wait till you set, you know till you have a, a workplace impairment recognition expert in place. And if there's an, an allegation of intoxication, maybe then you test. But sort of just routine or random screening for all positions may not be a good idea, particularly right now. Okay. But and I guess this would tie in. You did say for the CDL and bus drivers need a CDL, um, that they're – would they fall into that category? Um, now, they're not all employees yeah. of the district. Some, a lot of districts uh, contract out on that. Any federal law that requires testing always will preempt the state law and, and be binding. The one big comment I would have there is clients often say, well, I have a, I have, I'm required to maintain a federal drug-free workplace under the Federal Drug-Free Workplace Act because um, that is often included in many federal contracts in, in the receipt of federal funds. But that law itself does not actually require testing. So relying on that okay. is not sufficient to say that, you know, just because I, I have a federal drug-free workplace Act contract does not mean I'm required to test every employee. The CDL requirement is very clear. That one is definitely preempts state law, but it's it's not you know it doesn't mean just because you have a federal contract or you receive federal funds that you necessarily have to test everyone. Okay, um, I think I, you've handled almost all my questions um, that I had. Um, I did have one other one uh, that someone had e- emailed me before I even started this. I, I'm sorry, I should have brought this up. They uh, they want to know, if, um, and I assume it, that if someone's using um, cannabis uh, medicinally uh, for medical reasons, can they? Uh, w- how does that go with the non-smoking parameters? Uh, they can't do it at school for that. They would have to do it before. Whether it's an employee or a student. Well, for for students, um, there there in in the statute in eighteen a forty, there are exceptions for if a student has to have it administered at school. But you have to um, get that approved ahead of time, and the, the the required policy for that does set forth the procedure requirements so that it, it can happen at school, but only under certain circumstances and and with. The, the prior notification and approvals. Okay, only for students, yeah. not for staff members. Yeah. Yes, for students. And then generally speaking okay. in the public, uh, the, the, the general rule of thumb is under, under, the, under the bills or, is that if, um, if, if smoking is prohibited because of, the, of, because of state law regarding you know, cigarette smoking, then that would apply to smoking cannabis. But of course, you know, you have other forms of cannabis that could be used. So it's not to say that that works as a ban of the use of cannabis. It's just a ban on smoking cannabis. Okay. Let's um, bring us towards the end. I'm going to give you each a time to have some final thoughts. Seth, anything else that you would want to add that maybe we didn't cover that you think people should know about? You, you, you really did a good job <laughs> on the overview of the law. Uh, no, I, I think just you know, there's going to be there's there's going to be this is this is right self-serving for the lawyers, but the next 18 months are going to be really really important for employers to pay attention. There's going to be a rulemaking process which will allow for public comment, and a lot of the things we've talked about today that have a lot of gray areas are ripe for for involvement by employers in that rulemaking process. So stay tuned and pay attention to that with your with your counsel. And I, I hey, Caitlin, what about you? Yeah, just to briefly add that 
you know, work with work with your law enforcement, local law enforcement. You know, every year districts are required to review their uniform memorandum of understanding with law enforcement officials. And with all these changes happening, you know, those those meetings typically happen in the summertime. Who knows if we'll have more guidance by then, if the, if the regulations will be in process. But anytime, because as Seth is saying, with all these gray areas, work together with them and, and the resources you have in in your counties. Well, the, the, you know, your point, the, the uh, memorandum of, uh, of understanding, um, and you're right, it, it does happen say around July, but if things change, can you adjust that um, to reflect the laws better? Uh, and I, I would imagine this year it might be a little bit different conversation just because of the right. law. But Yeah, if, if it becomes, if something becomes in the current MOA becomes outdated because of, of new law, I don't think there's anything prohibiting, you know, districts and law enforcement officers from working together to put in those changes so that the, the MOA is, is accurate. Okay. All right. And I, I guess uh, we're um, – Seth kind of alluded to it, though, but if you have any incidents in this area, you might want to call your board attorney before you move ahead in terms of any repercussions with student staff or anything else. Yes. Yes, definitely. Okay. Okay. That brings us to the, uh, the end of this program. Unless, uh, I didn't get any questions in the chat room. So um, I'd just uh, like to thank Caitlin Pletcher and Seth Tipton for their uh, great uh, review of the, uh, the new uh, legalization of marijuana and cannabis and, and that there's a difference between cannabis and marijuana. Seth, thank you for clearing that up too. Um, so uh, I hope everyone has a good morning. And thank you, Seth. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate and thank you, Caitlin. It. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Okay. And I hope everyone enjoyed this, and uh, please uh, tune in again. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.